and welcome to the Library Girl and Book Boy podcast. Today I'm talking to author Shabelle Pounder, who you might know best from her Witch Wars or Bad Mermaid series. And we've got a magical adventure to talk about today. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello everyone, today we are welcoming Shabelle Pounder onto the podcast and she's talking about her brand new book Beyond Platform 13 which is out with Macmillan Children's Books and published by Beatrice Castro and is based on the magical world created by Eva Ibbotson which we will find out more about later. Hi there Shabelle. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So tell us all about the story of Beyond Platform 13. Um, Yes, so Beyond Platform 13 uh, takes place nine years after uh, the story that Eva Ibbotson wrote, The Secret of Platform 13, um, and the gumps in the world um, open, the gumps are portals to magical worlds, and they open every nine years. So the gumps have opened again. And we uh, find out what has happened to the world in those nine intervening years. And we meet um, characters. So there's um, Odge and Ben from the original book who are now 18 years old. And uh, basically a lot of uh, things have gone wrong on the island and the Harpies have seized power. So Odge, the book opens with Odge on a very special mission in the human world. And we find her in Vienna. And she is there to collect a very important person who is really important to the resistance uh, that she's set up on the island to stop the harpies. Um, But as has become Odge's speciality, there's a case of mistaken identity. And she actually brings back with her just a regular human girl. Um, So it's all about what happens and how they uh, try to stop the harpies. Excellent, thank you. Yes, it's really good fun. I really enjoyed. I love magical books, and I haven't <laughs> have to confess to not having read um, Eva Ibbotson's The Platform Secret of Platform Thirteen before I read this, but I didn't need to. I plunged straight in. It was such a such a great read. Oh, good. Yeah, it was. It was trying to find that balance of it being okay as a standalone, but also something that uh, really connected to the first book. So anyone who had read the first one, it felt like a natural follow on. Yeah, and I bet that was really tricky. So we've yeah. mentioned that it's kind of returning to a magical world created, first of all, by Eva Ibbotson. How did you come to be involved with this project? Um, well, her publisher and estate asked me to write the sequel. So I'm not sure um, uh, how much people know about author's estate. So Eva passed away in, in 2010. She is um, in her 80s. And... Um, when an author dies uh, their books if they're still in print it's it makes up your estate and um they pick someone to manage it so in eva's case uh she left her estate to her children uh so they run the estate so um yeah so it was working with them and with eva's publisher who are macmillan and eva's editor who's lucy pierce so it was it was really fun they um contacted my agent and asked if I'd be interested in doing it so she called me and I think she 
she found my reaction really funny because I was just, I think I went into nine-year-old mode because I had read uh, The Secret of Platform 13 when I was about nine years old. So I was just uh, so excited to be asked to sort of go and play around in that world, I suppose. Wow, how amazing. So yeah. how, apart from um, The Secret of Platform 13, had you read any of um, Eva's other books? Yeah, I had. That was definitely my favourite and the one... I think that really stuck with me but I'm also a big fan of because she wrote a, a number of of um they're sort of funny fantasy books and the characters are just all brilliant and there's one that I love that I always recommend to people that's called Dial a Ghost and mm-hmm. um it's just so funny because it's about a boy who you can call up and sort of or order a haunting and um, so a boy calls up to order a ghost to, for someone he needs to scare and there's a mix-up with his order and instead of a terrifying ghost he gets a really lovely ghost family and uh so it's I just love all her setups and everything they're just so brilliant so she was a real sort of inspiration in my own writing as well so um but yeah and I'm reading they've just reissued her um books for um adults uh with new covers and things so i'm i'm uh getting started on those so that's really um because i didn't read those when i was when i was younger so yeah really excited to read those ones well i was going to ask you what drew you to actually say yes to doing this project but i think you've kind of explained that in your love of her books when you were nine yourself like the characters were originally weren't they yeah i think i um yeah I was just um it it was just really exciting to because I think you everyone has a sort of bucket list of things that they would like to do in their career but then something like that is just so not something you ever imagine anyone would ask you to do so I couldn't really turn it down you know it was something I never imagined in a million years would land on my desk so I was I was so excited to do it but then I think it it meant that I went through the whole first draft it was an absolute joy to write it and I was just sort of like a giddy nine-year-old being back in that world and then as soon as I hit send I the adult in me came back and was like oh no what if no one likes it this is awful you know um and what I suddenly was worried I hadn't really considered that people would actually read it I was just having so much fun writing it so um but yeah it was it was just so nice to work on really special project no, it was. And I suppose, as you say, once the initial excitement of getting to inhabit your kind of dream book has passed, you then do you have to, did you feel pressure to um, stay faithful to the original or did, did, were you given quite a lot of freedom in what you did? Um, they were really great in that I had complete free reign and I didn't feel pressure to stick to the original, but I did, it was more a sort of, I want to do that because I think what was really important to me to sort of honor Eva I suppose was that the that the book that the heart of the book felt like an Eva book and that was really important to me um so what I wanted the book to have was echoes of the original so um the case of mistaken identity is um echoed that that's something that's in the original so I used um, plot elements to do that but then I also um, brought back all the characters all the favorites um, and sort of to see where they've been since and um, 
yeah, and just kind of, I sort of, I had all these different different research methods because what I wanted to do was make sure that if anyone asked me about any element of it, I would be able to uh, justify it and underpin it with sort of research and reasoning as to why I took the characters in that direction or the world in a certain direction. And I would be able to give reasoning as to why I would believe that Eva would do that too. I didn't just want to kind of go in there and just like, bulldoze my way through it being like oh I'll just throw this in and that and do what whatever I want with it um I really wanted to really research how she would have created a sequel and look for clues and then sort of weave that in to create the plot so um with the characters for example I um I looked to sort of what who might have inspired them and things. So um, Ben is my one of my <laughs> favorite characters, but the way Eva described him um, in the book is very similar to the way she described her husband Alan Ibbotson. And Ben is really interested in the natural world and creatures, and she always talked about how her husband would lift up a rock and he would just see a whole world under there, you know, and all these insects and he was fascinated by it all. And then there's one instance where she's talking about when she first met Alan Ibbotson and um, he, he had made an ant farm and he kept it hidden under his bed. And in the first book, Ben creates a den for this mist maker, which is a little magical creature and hides it under his bed. So I just felt there was lots of little parallels between Ben's behavior and how she described Alan Ibbotson. And so I thought, well, that's really useful as a steer, because if she in any way subconsciously saw Ben as sort of an Alan Ibbotson type character, then... I know that she would never corrupt him. And Ben's actually an interesting character because he's the prince of the island, so he has quite a lot of power. And um, we're revisiting him now as a teenager, so he could have changed completely. He could be, mm-hmm. he could have turned bad or something. So it, things like that were really interesting because then I knew, okay, no, she saw him as a good to his bones character and she wouldn't, wouldn't corrupt him. So that was how I sort of went about it all, was just trying to find where it had all come from and tried to understand it as much as I could. Interesting. So when you were doing all your research and kind of background reading, how did you, how did you kind of record it all and map it all out and plan what you were going to do in your own writing? Um, well, I had to do detailed synopsis. Um, that was one thing that obviously you have to get it approved from the publisher and the estate because they have to approve the story and things and um, so I did for the first time in my life a really detailed synopsis of sort of a breakdown of what happens in every chapter which I mm. thought I would find really restrictive because I don't normally do that with my own writing I usually just go nuts and see what happens but um, <laughs> it was it was actually really great and I just wrote a thing recently and used that sort of method and I just find it yeah it's so it was really I've learned a lot from being in Eva's world but yeah so I I um I had to write a really detailed synopsis and then I would put in elements of the research and the family were really lovely and very open um and available which was lovely but I um early on in the project I 
because I, I worked as a journalist for years. So when I knew that the um, the Ibbotsons and um, her son Justin in particular, who emailed me, was, he's really lovely. He, you know, said if you have any questions or anything, or if you want to stop by for tea, and uh, he. Yeah, so I thought the journalist in me thought, right, I need to go. He lives up north. I was like, I need to go up north and interview him and just mine him for information and get everything I can. And then this, the author in me didn't want, was really reluctant to do that. And I couldn't put my finger on why for the longest time. Um, and I think it was because I think authors put a lot of their life into their work, but they also have a sort of, boundary in place somewhere or they hold a certain amount back and I, I don't have children myself but I'm sure that's especially true if you have children you know not everything is for fiction you know not every special moment and everything makes it into a book and I just thought if I mind them for information um, what could happen is I wouldn't be able to distinguish where Eva would have drawn that line. And then it comes back to me wanting the heart of the book to be very much an Eva book. And I didn't want to in any way disrespect her or the boundaries that she'd put in place in her private life. Um, and so I did a little test in the synopsis because I found a reference that her son Toby had made in an interview because um, Toby's also an author. And it yes. was a... a um, quite an old interview and he mentioned it was this lovely story about how every new year they would have a big party at their house and Eva would make what they called spludger cake and I loved this I thought it was such a great name and I think he said it didn't taste very good or something they found it all very funny and she would every year she would make this spludger cake for them and I thought that's such a great name and such lovely detail but I couldn't find any reference that she had made to it in any of her interviews or in any of her fiction. You know, I could be wrong. There could be a reference out there somewhere. And I'm sure someone who's um, read all her books and things, um, they might be able to, to correct me. But as far as I could tell, she hadn't mentioned Spludger Cake ever once publicly or in fiction. So I put it in the synopsis as a as a detail that I would that the the I said the characters would eat spludger cake and I highlighted it and I said this I explained where I got the detail from and what was really interesting was when they came back with the synopsis they were incredibly good at just kind of giving me free reign and and not being restrictive at all and their only hard no in the synopsis was that they said please could you not include spludger cake so for me that just felt like you know, she spludger cake was for them, and that was something that she kept just for them, and it was their mm -hmm. special thing. So I think that just confirmed in my mind. Okay, I'm going about the research the right way and in the most respectful way. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of kind of thinking around that as well. How interesting! Mm -hmm. Very detailed research you did. Mm. Put your journalistic skills to good use. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in handy not just writing sort of faux witch newspapers for the witch war series and stuff we can actually <laughs> research yeah <laughs> 
That's very cool. So you mentioned um, revisiting Fern and how you thought about how he would have developed as a character. Were there any other old characters that you, you were particularly looking forward to revisiting in your own writing and why, if so? Uh, yes, definitely Audrey Gribble. Um, and what was funny was the night, so after my agent had called and, and told me about the project, she had said, you know, think about it, um, you know, probably in part so that we weren't immediately getting back and saying, yes, absolutely, we'll do it. That's fine. Um, so it mm. seemed desperate, but I, I was ready to just say yes straight away. But she said, just, you know, take a bit of time. Think about it. We did have a busy schedule with World Book Day and all these things going on. So um, and I went to bed that night and I had <laughs> I had this weird dream that I got up in the middle of the night and went to my study and the light was on and I have this little chair that my gran left for me it's one of these sort of low to the ground victorian chairs and my gran and i are both really short so she thought she always called it my chair because we only we could sit in it um because it was a ch- basically child sized so i've got that in, yeah. in my in my study and i walked in and there was this teenager sitting there with these bright blue boots and she was leaning back on the chair and she just said i um I think we both know you're not going to pass up an opportunity to write about me. And I woke up and I was like, oh, scribble. <laughs> and uh, wow. um, so it was a ridiculous dream. But she came back to me as a sort of, I remember loving her as a child. Um, so, yeah, so she, I was really excited to write her and write her as a slightly older character um, and see how she's evolved and sort of grown into. She's quite sort of she's a really complex character actually um and so she's really fun to write she sort of flits from one mood to the next and um yeah so I was really excited to write about her excellent and you've talked a lot about how you've um incorporated elements from the original story but I want to talk about some of your new creations and magical devices um what were your favorite of those to write and why um I loved writing about Magdalena, who's the uh, ghost rat at the Sacker Hotel, um, because in mm-hmm. the first book, the Gump, which is the magic portal um, at King's Cross Station, that is guarded by a number of ghosts. So I thought when we go to the Vienna Gump, um, there also needs to be some ghosts uh that are in charge of it so I loved the idea of uh, this sort of quite snobbish rat who you know um feels that this grand hotel is hers you know and she's um so I loved writing about her um she was she was a really fun character to introduce yeah and were there any um kind of magical implementations that you're particularly proud of um there was one I really like the, the, well, there's sort of a plot point with these things called lost laces and essentially they're just shoelaces and if you tug them, you become invisible to everyone around you and everyone becomes yeah. invisible to you. So it's, um, yeah, I thought that would be quite useful. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be really handy. Yeah. You've mentioned um, the gumps, which are like teleports back to the island of mm-hmm. mist. And they're in every country across the world. If you were in the position to set up the gumps yourself, 
where would you put one, say, in the USA or in India? What would be kind of prime location, do you oh, think? I love this question. Yeah, because Eva, in the first book, that was the main thing that I found that was a really good world-building device, was she mentions every country has a gump, but then she only visits the one in King's Cross Station. So to me, that felt like a very much a world-building device that she'd seeded. So if she ever wanted to go back, she could expand it and go to different locations so that was mm-hmm. what I used as the framework um but I, I'm almost um reluctant to answer it just because I think if anyone else was to write another one in the future and they were to set it in the US or India I wouldn't want them to be swayed by anything I had said I would want them to mm. I don't know I almost don't want to say um yeah I don't know okay. I don't know yeah I like oh, the one in the Sacker hotel is is basically in a in a cupboard in a in a one of the rooms and they hire out the whole room uh the the whole floor um and then they sort of put lots of cleaning in progress signs and things and then there's this one suite that you go into um and that's how you get in um but yeah, I'm not sure. I did have a lot of fun with creating sort of um, different ways into different parts of the world because there's the Pearly Mermaids in London. So there's a statue um, down by the bridge um, by is it Temple. I forgot. <laughs> I live in London and I've forgotten. Um, get so confused <laughs> with that part of town. Um, but yeah, I was wandering around for ages and saw this statue and thought, brilliant, we can incorporate this and uh, sort of going up and down stairs and under bridges and stuff I think people must have thought what what earth are you doing um but yeah I almost I almost wouldn't want to say just in case okay I won't make you (laughs) we can move on that's fine um so when I was reading one of the book's main themes seems to be of the intolerance of the harpies to other people who are different to them and that to me seemed very in tune with um current world events was that deliberate or yeah I think it um though it's it's like without going into all the politics that is just so Mm -hmm. um awful right now um yeah it was a weird time to be writing it for a number of reasons you know I would work on the manuscript, have my dinner, watch the news, and then go back to the manuscript. And the contrast was really apparent, I guess, because Eva's world, you know, um, she was born in Vienna and she left when she was a young girl um, just before the Austrian Angelus when the Nazis took over. And her parents were Jewish. and she came here to this island um, and this was where she ended up living for her whole life and she had a family in Newcastle and lived there until she uh, died in 2010 and um, it's just the book if you if you read the first one it's this little island and it's it's secret and you have to find it you have to know how to get to it but anyone who finds it is very welcome to stay and call it home and 
what's really interesting about the um the island that I love is that it's this really inclusive island where sort of all the magical creatures live side by side but it also has a human royal family that you know everyone's that's fine you know it's um, normally in fantasy books the non-magical people the humans are sort of the other characters you know they're not um they don't often live side by side with the magical creatures so I just think it's such a lovely world and this concept that you know if you you know find it you can call it home and I've always been interested in that concept of home and how how you know how somewhere becomes home and who gets to decide where your home is and things and I think Eva also had that interest in home and home is a strong theme in a lot of her books sort of finding home and um and I so I I was born in Canada so I'm a Canadian citizen and have a Canadian passport um but my family when I was quite young moved to Scotland and I grew up there and lived there basically my whole life until I moved down to London so I feel very Scottish but my family are Irish so I'm also an Irish citizen and have an Irish passport um, and a British one so it's this weird feeling of feeling like you belong to a lot of places but also nowhere at all all at the same time because I'm probably culturally Scottish but interestingly with the Scottish referendum I looked up the criteria for what would be a Scottish citizen and you either had to be born in Scotland or have parents that were born in Scotland um, or you had to live in Scotland so I wouldn't qualify even though I feel very Scottish um, so it's strange I just am always interested by that concept of home and who defines it and I think something that has come up a lot recently with politics going on at the moment and this idea that some people have to go and you know who gets to decide that and I think Eva being someone who you know I it's it's like really upsetting to think about it but if she hadn't have come to our island um you know she would have in all likelihood have been murdered and look what she gave us you know we're still nearly 10 years after her death still talking about her wonderful work and appreciating it and she gave us so much and I feel like the parallel with that magical island is very much maybe how she feels about this one so to see everything that's going on at the moment and the kind of conversations that are being had I just thought it was something that I couldn't not address in the book a little bit. Um, it was hard not to, I think. Yeah, it'd be interesting to find out if any children reading it kind of pick up on that thing, because I do find that the kind of target age range of this book are a lot more aware of world events and things, and they may well actually make that um, link themselves. Yeah, definitely. Interesting, thank you. Um, so I'd like to just sneak in one last question at the end and put you on the spot oh. and ask if, I know, <laughs> if anything that you're working on or that you've got coming apart from Beyond Platform 13 that you are allowed to say anything at all to us about. Oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? I don't really I know, know um, what I'm allowed to talk about. Um, uh, I mean, I think I'm allowed to say there's another... Uh, 
book in the bad mermaid series that's coming out next year which i think that's okay to talk about um and then i do have another thing i should hopefully be able to talk about soon um that i'm really excited about but it's currently top secret i think for now but hopefully not too long <laughs> right well, i'll keep my ears and eyes open in that case and I, I, I can, you can stop now. I won't make you tell me any more. But thank you so much for talking to us, Ethan. Aww, it's been really thank interesting. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's really fun. Just about the de- detail in the church you did actually has brought the whole new dimension to the book for me. So thank you so Aww. much for sharing that with me. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. I'm going to say good night. Thank you very much and goodbye. Aww, thank you. Bye. Bye bye. If you'd like to get hold of me for any personal recommendations, either for yourself or a reader you know, or maybe a topic you're doing, please don't be shy. Make contact. You can get hold of me on Twitter or Instagram as at BookSuperhero2, or you can find me on my blog, www.librarygirlandbookboy.wordpress.com, or you can find me on my Library Girl and Book Boy Facebook group. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, remember to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. Talking of which, next week I'll be interviewing author Lucy Christopher about her beautiful new picture book with Lantana Publishing called Shadow. See you next time. Bye-bye.